Friends, we're going to be in Hebrews today, and because I love and collect music, I'm a sucker for albums with bonus tracks. If I have the option to buy the normal version of an album or an overpriced special edition of the album, 95% of the time I'm going for the special edition. The idea of getting some extra music, especially from an artist I love, I'm in. Just take my money. And last week, we got a bonus track from our brother Mike Navarre from Hebrews, stepping in on two days' notice and delivering the word faithfully to us on short notice is a gift. So I am grateful for your work and your labor and your willingness to do it and to serve our church. Now, what does that mean for us this week? Well, it means we're actually going to wrap up our Advent series later than we planned. Originally, Pastor Gary was set to preach this text, but he and his family are recovering from sickness, and so now I have the privilege to finish this series this morning. So let's open our Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Our text for this morning is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Again, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And if you're using one of the blue Bibles from a chair near you, you'll find uh, our passage beginning on page 1007. Again, if you're using a blue Bible from a seat near you, you'll find our passage on page 1007. And as you turn there, I want to remind you that the book of Hebrews was written to Christians who were suffering persecution and were facing temptation to, to turn away from Jesus and turn back to the old covenant, to the old priesthood. And the author of Hebrews has been building this argument from the Old Testament to show that there is no more old covenant. That Jesus has instituted a new covenant, that the old has passed away. In effect, that there was no old covenant priesthood to return to because Jesus had come and he is the great high priest. There is no safety in returning to the old covenant, only damnation. And last week, Mike showed us how the author of Hebrews addresses non-Christian Hebrews who were still tempted to cling to the Old Testament or still clinging to it. They were denying Jesus as the Messiah, showing them that if they, would, if they continued to cling to the Old Covenant, they would, in fact, find no entrance into God's presence apart from Christ. As Mike reminded us, the author of Hebrews, uh, uh, he reminded us, as the author of Hebrews did to his hearers, if we have truly trusted in Jesus, we can never be lost but we will be preserved because of God's faithfulness. As he even said to us last week, the security of our salvation is bound up in Christ, not in us. And so this week, we come to the end of this brief series where we reflect on Jesus, our high priest. And in our text today, the author shows us how the priesthood of Jesus changes the very way we live our day-to-day lives with particular focus on the local church. So let's read Hebrews 10 verses 19 through 25 together. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up, stir up one another to love and good works, 
not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Carrie and I recently discovered the magical land of Costco. Now, it wasn't for a lack of people talking about it, or even a lack of visiting the establishment. But something changed a couple of months ago. We decided on my day off that while the kids were in school, we were going to swing through Costco. And everything changed in a span of like 45 minutes. I discovered things I didn't know I needed in quantities that would ensure I would never run out of them. But getting in to Costco required something of me. I had to show my membership card. In fact, if I did not show the card, the seemingly kind greeters at the door would become a barrier to my entrance. I would be barred from this glorious land, shut out only to look and wonder at all the magical things inside. There's nothing magical about the card, right? Rather, the card represents an agreement I entered into with this establishment based on commitments I made to them and they made to me. I think sometimes we talk about belonging to the church, even the local church, or more specifically, church membership. And we can wrongly assume that being a member of a church is like being a member of the Costco shopping club. But the Bible speaks of our belonging to Christ and belonging to one another in far more weighty terms than price club membership. The reality of what Jesus has accomplished for us through his life, death, and resurrection the privileges that we are granted in the presence of God and the Spirit-empowered service we are called to give one another should and are infinitely greater than simply belonging to a club. Friends, to believe in Jesus and to have him as your great high priest gives you the right to enter God's very presence. You are also welcomed into God's very family as his children, a family made up of brothers and sisters in Christ who are the church. There is one universal church made up of all the saints over all the world and from every age. But this universal church is practically seen in local churches, local assemblies who band together to worship God and to love one another. And the author of Hebrews gives us a picture of how we are dependent upon one another to remember the gospel that we have believed and to encourage each other in the Christian life. You see, the church is not an optional add-on to your life. The local church is the gift and resource the Lord has given you to sustain you until you die or He returns. I mean, we say it from time to time here, and it bears repeating because we're forgetful. Your personal spiritual growth is a community project. Your personal spiritual growth is a community project. Your biological family, 
even valuable and precious as they are, you may not be in heaven with all of them. You will be in heaven with all who have trusted in Christ from every age. So in a very real way, according to Scripture, your church family is more lasting and concrete than even your biological family. Because your church family is built upon a better covenant, better promises, with better privileges than any family you will have this side of heaven. And that glorious relationship we have together is first a relationship to God the Father through His Son Jesus, our great high priest. So maybe as you were listening to the text, as I read it or following along, you picked up on some of the cues there that the author of Hebrews gives. He gives two occurrences of the word since, followed by three repetitions of the phrase, let us. The author is giving us two precious reminders and three powerful responsibilities. So that's how we're going to approach this text today. We're going to look at the two precious reminders and the three powerful responsibilities with the rest of our time this morning. So first, let's look at these two precious reminders. Reminder number one, Jesus purchased your place before God with his blood. Jesus purchased your place before God with his blood. Look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. The author is building the foundation for the actions he is getting ready to call these Christians to do. And it is of great importance that you understand how he does this. The word since functions as a pointer to where he is going. He's going to tell them what they need to do, but first he wants to remember who they are. To be a Christian is, first, is not first a list of new behaviors and work for you to do. Being a Christian is first an identity. When you repent of your sin and come to Jesus Christ by faith, you are brought into the family of God. You are made citizens of heaven. Your identity changes from a child of darkness to a child of light through faith in Jesus. And that new identity was achieved for you by Jesus. You did not achieve it yourself. His blood shed for you on the cross and his powerful resurrection from the dead are what achieved your entryway into the presence of God. As Paul reminds us in Colossians 1, 13 through 14, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, he being Jesus, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And the author of Hebrews shows us that your new identity, that shows, shows us that our new identity was won by an unimaginable sacrifice and grants us an unimaginable privilege. We have the privilege of a welcomed entryway into God's presence. We've seen how these Hebrew Christians are, are dealing with suffering and persecution, that they were outcasts. They were cast out of Judaism by their faith in Jesus. They were being cast out of their homes into jail. Some were being cast out of social relationships and community. But the author reminds them that leaving the world for Jesus means entering into the courts of God's glory. 
It's not a surprise that at this point in the letter, the author uses the, the phrase holy places. As these people were tempted to return to the old covenant practices, they would have been well accompanied and understand the concept of holy places. So a bit of temple geography here, and I think there's a picture, Christian, if there's, a, there's not a picture, never mind. So I'll just describe it. It's a word picture. Uh, so a bit of temple geography here. The Jewish temple was divided into areas of access. Oh, we got it. Never mind. It's a miracle. It's a Christmas miracle. Here we go. All right. So you can read none of these words. I understand that. That's okay. But the Jewish temple was divided into areas of access with each level of access having a separate requirement to enter. So moving outward in, you had the Gentiles courtyard that's outside of the the temple itself. Then you would see the gate beautiful here, and you would enter in, and this is the woman's cart, women's courtyard. Enter here, there's the Israelites' courtyard and the priest's courtyard. So each level had access points where you had to go in. You, you, had, to, you had a requirement to enter. I mean, if you're a Gentile, basically you're outside the temple. That's your courtyard. You're not allowed in. And then if you're a woman, you can go in this external area. You're not allowed any further than this external area, this one courtyard kind of. You're inside, but not all the way inside. And then if you're an Israelite, you can go in a little bit farther. That's where Israelite men could go. And then the courtyard of the priests, a little bit further in. Each of these getting closer to the main area of the temple, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, where only the high priests went to offer the sacrifices for God's people. Now, an unauthorized or unqualified person entering into a place they were not permitted to go was to potentially forfeit your life. At each level, there were barriers to the holy places of God. These barriers existed to protect the holy places from becoming defiled and to protect sinners from God's righteous wrath the honor to go beyond what they were allowed to go was not theirs. That was not their privilege. That was not their right until Jesus came. Jesus opened the new and living way to the presence of God through the curtain of his flesh, which was torn that we might enter into the holy places, that we, common, filthy, unrighteous sinners, might pass through the blood of Jesus, having our sins washed away, being fully cleansed and declared righteous by faith in Jesus. Even we can enter into the most privileged place in all of the universe, the very presence of God. And beloved, there's no greater place you can be invited to. So a little bit of an illustration, personal story here. In 2013, for our 10-year wedding anniversary, Carrie and I visited Boston to make a religious pilgrimage to the greatest of all baseball fields, Fenway Park. Baseball fan or not, Fenway Park is like a time machine. From the cobblestone street complete with the clowns, and the baseball players on stilts playing catch with kids, to the strange way the field and the stadium is constructed, there's no doubting that this place was finished in 1912. We watched the game. They lost. But what was greater was that we actually got to take a tour of Fenway Park. 
You see, on off days during the season, you can pay for a tour of Fenway Park. And on this tour, you're given access to all sorts of places in and around the park, but not every place. We were allowed to enter the visitor's dugout in Fenway Park. If you don't know what baseball, you can Google dugout later. Anyways, but we were allowed to enter the visitor's dugout, which was amazing. But the little hallway at the end of the dugout, which led to the players' clubhouse in the locker room, that was chained off. Here and no further. We had been given a tour, provisional access, a bit further than normal, but even then there were areas that we were not qualified nor permitted to go. And I looked down the hallway, leaning over the chain barrier, feeling the eyes of the security watching me like a hawk, just hoping to get a glimpse of some special part of the stadium or maybe even a random player. So it may not be baseball stadiums for you, but I think we all have thoughts of restricted places that we would really like to go. Maybe wander the nooks and crannies of the White House, tracing all the secret tunnels and passageways. Maybe it's the secret character tunnels underneath the Disney theme parks that transport the different characters all over the place so they magically pop up in new locations. Maybe it's Hogwarts, just covered by a spell of hiding. Maybe it's the Kremlin to explore whatever secrets Moscow may have. We all have a desire for unimpeded access into something exclusive and above our pay grade and above what we're allowed to do because we're restricted either because of our race or our gender or our wealth or our political status or our skills. There are places we cannot go that we really like to go. But here, the author reminds these struggling saints to remember that since they have Jesus as their high place, They have been granted access into the most exclusive and glorious place that exists, the very presence of the holy, holy, holy God. There's no place on earth that can compare with that. I mean, think about how the authors describe the the presence of God. Let me show you just, or let me read you just a few examples. Psalm 1611, the psalmist David writes, you make known to me the path of life in your presence There is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What? Fullness of joy. How quickly does your joy dissipate? Has it ever been full? Pleasures forevermore? What about when Jesus was dying on the cross, and the dying thief next to him said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Luke 23, 43, and he, Jesus, said to him, truly I say to to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What, What comes to your mind when you think of paradise? Sandy beaches and blue shores or snow capped mountains or beautiful trees or Today, you'll be with, with me, with Jesus in paradise is the promise. Paradise is what the presence of God is described like here. Or how about Revelation 21, 1 through 4? This might be the best one yet. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, 
and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Death, pain, crying, they're just swept away. Those are former things gone from the presence of God. Church, is there any place that compares with that? I need to bring it down a second. I'm getting excited. But I I want you to see what earthly privilege can compare with that. There is none. We could empty the world of its every treasure and secret and it would look like dung, like garbage in comparison with the presence of God. And if you're in Christ, Jesus has given you access to this holy place, the very presence of God himself. That's yours. He did this by shedding his blood on the cross for you in order that he might become both your high priest and your sacrifice for sins. Our Lord laid himself upon the altar in our place that the veil, the separation between God and us, might be torn apart so that by faith we may enter into God's glorious presence for all eternity. Which is actually our second precious reminder that we have Jesus as our great high priest. Look again at verse 21. It says, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, this we have seen repeatedly throughout our series. It's at the very heart of all that we have been considering for the last weeks, and we have covered this much. So I'm going to be brief here because you can listen to the previous sermons for a more full explanation, but we can't skip all of it. Jesus is our great high priest. There is no other priest to be found in the old covenant or anywhere else. We need not look for someone else to open the way to the presence of God for us. Jesus has done this once for all, as the author explains in chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The priestly work of Christ was securing our access to God through his own perfect sacrifice. But we've also seen that his work as our priest ushered in a new and better covenant. Caleb showed us this just a few weeks ago. Because this new and better covenant is enacted on better promises and has a better priest. And beloved, our better priest intercedes for us as our high priest before the Father himself. Remember Hebrews 7 verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
And notice that the intercession of Christ in that verse is proof that your salvation, your entry into God's presence will not and cannot fail. Truly, because we are in Christ and we have Jesus as our high priest, we are saved, as the author of Hebrews puts it, to the uttermost. Nothing can separate us from the love of God if we are in Christ Jesus. The veil is torn, the doorway open, and through Christ we enter into God's presence with no more pain nor tears where there are infinite pleasures at his right hand. The richness of this reminder to these hurting Christians is the fuel for how they could think and live in a world that is hostile to them. And it's the same for us. When the world is hostile towards us, hates us, even hurts us, may even kill us, the richness of this reminder is the buoy of the the hurting soul. Because if they killed our Savior, should we expect better treatment than him? When the author uses the phrase, the house of God, in these verses, he's not referring to a place. He's referring to a people. Jesus isn't the priest over a physical location. It's over his redeemed people. Namely, we who have repented of our sins and trusted in Christ. Now, you may think, well, that's obvious. I'm not talking about a building. Why point that out? Well, the reason is this, is not everyone is a part of the house of God. No one is actually born into this house. No friend, to enter into the house of God, to be numbered among his people, requires faith in Jesus alone as your high priest. He is not the world's high priest. He is only the high priest of those who come to him in repentance and faith. So I want to pause to ask you, have you come to Jesus to be your high priest? I mean, have you heard the message that apart from Christ, you have no hope, but in Christ, you have all the hope you need? Have you seen the reality of your sin, brokenness, and evil, and despaired of your shame, and come to the understanding that there's nothing you can do to clean yourself up? Do you know that right now? Because there is hope for you. There is love for you. There is acceptance for you. There is mercy and grace for you if you would come to Jesus, believing and trusting in him. He becomes your high priest and welcomes you into the presence of God. You can know him today. Will you turn to him and trust him? If you have questions about what that means, you could talk to me or Caleb or Pastors Bob or Gary. We would be honored to tell you more about what it means to trust in Jesus. And church, because we have, since we have a high priest, and because our high priest has opened the new and living way to the Father, the author charges us with three powerful responsibilities, which is what we're going to turn to now. Now, I choose the word powerful on purpose for a few reasons, two, namely. One is that they are not natural. They are supernatural. The responsibilities we're about to talk about in these verses are not activities or tasks for you to add to the reminders app on your phone. 
They are responsibilities both given and empowered by God himself through the Holy Spirit. They are spiritual responsibilities. Thus, they are empowered by the Holy Spirit working in us. Though not stated right here in these verses, the author has made repeated reference to how the Holy Spirit speaks through God's word throughout the book in chapter 3, verse 7, and chapter 10, verse 15. And he also speaks of the Spirit giving gifts to the church in chapter 2, verse 4. These are spirit-empowered works. Secondly, the testimony of the rest of the New Testament is that we, we see that our spiritual life and responsibilities are just that, spiritual. They are dependent upon the indwelling presence and power of the person of the Holy Spirit. These are powerful responsibilities because they are conducted and made beneficial to us and to each other by the Holy Spirit. The second reason I use the word powerful is because if we would believe the truths about Christ that we have already heard and act by the power of the Spirit in the ways that we're going to see here, these responsibilities have the power to change you and to change each other. These responsibilities have the power to sustain weary souls, to draw back sinners from the brink of destruction, to remind us of the glory of God and to help us know how to care for each other. These responsibilities are powerful in their effect upon us, upon each other, and beloved, even the world around us. So first, responsibility number one, we draw near to God. Verse 22, let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now this instruction may seem painfully obvious as you're reading it, and it is. But how many of us treat the fundamental responsibility of drawing near to God as optional? How many of us actually treat drawing near to God as a fundamental responsibility that flows out of our belief in Jesus as our high priest? Here's what I mean. The command begs the question... What it means to, what does it mean to draw near? And a second question, to what do we draw near? Now, the second question has already been answered by what we've, we've seen. We draw near to God himself. It's not a what, it's a who. A person we come to, God the Father, through Christ, the G, Christ Jesus, our high priest, by the power of the Holy Spirit. The more pressing question for us then is, what is drawing near? And the answer is worship. Drawing near to God in this context is worshiping God. The whole book of Hebrews is concerned with the temptation these suffering Christians were dealing with to stop worshiping the one true God through Jesus and attempt to worship him as they wanted to, the old covenant. The talk of intercession, sacrifice, hearing the word of God, praying, all of these images are used by the author to be, to be images of drawing near to God. All of these acts fall under the umbrella of drawing near. You see, the first and most basic responsibility for Christians is to respond to God in worship. But there's more. There's actually an emphasis here that I think we might be prone to overlook. Let us. Certainly, private worship of the Lord is in view here, but the emphasis of the author of Hebrews is corporate worship with other believers. Drawing near to God can be done in private, and this is powerful, but the author uses the first person plural 
to show us that the powerful responsibility we have is to draw near to God is not only personal, it's corporate. If this was a command for individual devotion and worship, the New Testament makes no sense. For why would the vast majority of the New Testament be written to churches rather than individuals? We draw near to God together. And this points us to the Spirit's work among us as well. If we all have spiritual gifts, as the author makes plain in chapter 2, the place where those spiritual gifts are to be used is the church. Not your jobs, your homes, your families. These gifts were given for the sake of the body of Christ, the church, to be exercised and used in the context of other Christians. Because Jesus is your high priest, You should worship him with other Christians. Anything less than that is to fail in your responsibilities. So how's your commitment to his church? Look at your life. I I hope you can honestly look at your life and ask, are you committed to drawing near to God with other Christians? Are you committed to doing that as the most basic act of your Christian life? Or is the local church just an option for you? Do you tell yourself you're doing good here at this local church because you attend most Sundays or some Sundays? Our weekly gatherings are not group activities. They are obedience to the Lord in light of his glorious salvation. Is that how you think of attending church? Or have you let yourself downgrade the church to just another item on your calendar? If it's just an activity, it's no big deal to miss it. I mean, who cares? Catch up next week. It's fine. You'll just catch up next week or maybe in two weeks or maybe in three weeks or when you get around to it, or you're just not too sleepy or tired or need a week off. Church, are we in danger of neglecting our great salvation because sometimes Sundays are inconvenient? I mean, look how the author ties the worship of God to our salvation. He piles up these Old Testament images in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Why do we gather? Because we've been saved. That's why we gather. The true heart calls calls the image from Isaiah 38.3 of walking before God with a whole heart, which means faithful. And then he moves to the heart sprinkled clean, which calls to mind what God said through Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Then he speaks of our bodies being washed with pure water and many see this as a reference to baptism. And even though I am a card carrying Baptist. Actually, I don't have a card. I just identify as a Baptist. That interpretation's a stretch. More likely, in keeping with what he's done throughout the letter, he's calling to mind Exodus, where the ritual washings were instructed to be performed before entry into the temple. There may be an implication for Christian baptism, but that's not what I think he means here. Rather, I think the the author is, is piling up these Old Testament metaphors to show that because Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament and we are saved by this, our great high priest, 
Everything that would tempt us to cower from God's presence or to run from him has been removed by the finished work of our Lord. He's talking about our powerful responsibility to gather together to worship God because we have been saved by his son, Jesus. And the place he calls us to do this is with other Christians, not in isolation. Which moves to a, a, a second powerful responsibility, responsibility number two. We hold fast to Jesus together. Again, he says us. The building image is that we, if we Christians gather corporately to draw near to God, there's another responsibility we have, and that's to hold fast the confession of our hope. The holding fast language means to continue believing, to continue in the faith. And the hope that he speaks of confessing is the message of the gospel of Jesus. He has been laying out through all the, the whole book. This is the hope within us. That, that hope of our confession is shorthand for the gospel of Jesus Christ because our hope is Jesus, his person, and his work as our high priest. I mean, have you ever noticed how isolated Christians are weird? Like, really weird? I mean, not like, like they just dress funny. Like, we're all weird to a certain extent, okay? I'm not saying, like, I'm not trying to be like, that's weird, you know, like, I'm not doing that. I'm saying we're all weird, but a Christian who isolates themselves comes up with really strange ideas really quick. I mean, they're only a stone's throw away from, from really strange beliefs and practices. A professing Christian with no local church connection becomes, in essence, an authority unto themselves. There's no brother or sister to help them hold fast to the true gospel, there's no one to correct or encourage them when they start to believe strange things and do weird things and justify strange behaviors with odd and random Bible texts. There's no one to actually help them hold fast to the true gospel. And you need to understand, me, friends, this is the natural trajectory of every human heart. It's not that those guys are weirdos. It's that we'd be weird like them if we isolated ourselves from other Christians. That's just where we go. But through our relationship to other Christians, we are enabled by one another to hold fast to the true gospel, affirming the faith once for all delivered to the saints and denouncing any false gospel. And church, the letter of Galatians, if, you're, if you don't think a false gospel is a threat to a true church, read the letter of Galatians. The letter of Galatians reminds us that false gospels will come and deception will come. And just like a sheep away from the shepherd and the other sheep is easy pickings for a predator, a Christian distant from other Christians in a local church is an easy target for the devil. No matter how many books they've read or how big their library is or how many podcasts they've got queued up on their phone, they're an easy target for Satan. You see, holding fast to the gospel, even your personal spiritual growth, holding fast to the gospel is a community project. Your perseverance in the faith is ensured and strengthened by your connection to other Christians. Now, you may say, wait. You said our salvation is dependent upon Jesus alone. Yes, I did. I did say that without a doubt. But the means Jesus gave his people to continue in, in the faith is his body on the cross, resurrected and born or resurrected from the dead, and his body, the church, of which we are the members if we have believed in Jesus. 
Listen, friends, I want to get real practical. I need you. I need you in my life to keep me believing in Jesus. You need me in your life to keep you believing in Jesus. That's how the Lord preserves us. It's not that we're preserving one another. It's how the Lord has ordained that we would preserve, persevere in the faith. And on that day, when we see the Lord face to face, we will understand that it was he who held us fast through each other. Such is the wonderful and powerful responsibility we have, and there's a final responsibility. Responsibility number three, we care for each other. The final responsibility in verses 24 and 25 is actually both broad and specific. Let me show you what I mean. First, what he says not to do in verse 25. Look at verse 25 again. He says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. That is really specific and clear. Some of these Hebrew believers had eased into the practice of not gathering with the local church. Now, there are a variety of reasons for this, real reasons. They could have been arrested. They could have been killed. They may have had their homes vandalized and their property stolen. They could face public mocking and loss of relationships. Distance from the church, in their mind, was a remedy to these dangers. Not assembling with other Christians was a way to be comfortable and safe. But it isn't safe. Remember what I was just saying about isolation? Neglecting to gather with the church is a first indicator of a growing apathy towards Jesus and his gospel. The author specifically says, don't do that. He says it very clearly, don't do that. So the opposite of what he's calling them to is to continue gathering with the saints, even as much as it may cost. The cost of neglecting each other is actually greater. I mean, think about this personally. Can you think of a time in your life where a Christian brother or sister gave you some solid biblical advice that you listened to and were helped by? I mean, if you're a Christian, right, you have to say at least one, someone told you about Jesus. Solid biblical advice, right? Don't go to hell, go to heaven by this glorious high priest. It's good advice. But can you think about your Christian life? Another instance where a brother or sister has helped you. I mean, I'm from the state of Florida, right? So if my friends are telling me to do something, it's probably going to end up in the news and not in a good way, but in the church, right? But many times our Christian friends give us good advice that we actually should hear and heed. Let me, let me, let me press in a little bit here and say that's not going to happen if you're not around other brothers and sisters in Christ. Regularly to, to worship the Lord and remember his gospel. So I want to ask you again, are you prone to neglect the gathering of the saints? Let me press harder because this text pressed on me and I just want to share the, share the love, right? Are you prone to come to church with no intention of looking to others? Meaning, 
don't you think it's possible to gather as a church while neglecting to actually gather with the church? So let's get, that's a specific thing, but let's get to the broader responsibility that he says, to consider each other. Specifically, to consider how to stir each other up to love and good works. Verse 24. Again, this command makes little sense apart from the local church. Unless we're a part of a local church, who's the one another? Now, we could say it's all Christians everywhere, and that's certainly a true statement. But here the focus is on Christians who are meeting together regularly in one location. And the command is to consider, which is an impossible task to consider constantly how to stir up all Christians everywhere, all over the face of the earth, to love and good works. That's impossible. But it's realistic, though supernatural, to consider a particular group of Christians. We might stir up, encourage, serve, and care for. I mean, again, what a powerful responsibility we are given for one another. To know one another, to care for one another, to consider one another in order to discover ways to encourage one another in the Christian life. And the the responsibility he gives actually comes with a reminder that we only have so long to do it. The last phrase in our text, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day he is talking about is the day of judgment when Christ returns as conquering king. We are prone to fix our eyes on the here and now, the present and the immediate. But if we gather to worship, to hold fast, and to consider and serve one another, our eyes are lifted up from this daily grind to the return of our King. We see how temporary this life really is and that Jesus is actually eternal, that our sufferings, our trials, our joys and our triumphs in this life pale in comparison to the weight of glory in heaven. That's why we gather to remind each other of the truth and to care for each other through encouragement. We have this responsibility. Why? Because we have a great high priest over us who purchased our redemption through his blood and intercedes for us even now. Look, membership at Costco is great. It really is. But can you see how membership to the body of Christ and to the local church is so much greater. The church is the means by which we honor and worship the Lord. It's the means by which we serve one another, helping each other to heaven. The reason we practice as a local church, church membership here at Redeemer, is because we want to own these precious reminders and powerful responsibilities in our life together. Because we hear The author of Hebrews remind us, he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. And we believe this truth together as members of a local church. And one very practical way we engage our powerful responsibilities week after week, drawing near to God, holding fast to our confession, and caring for one another is the Lord's Supper. We're actually doing all three of those things when we partake of the supper. Because 
We draw near to God. We worship him for who he is, the God who is our Savior, Redeemer. We hold fast that it is Christ alone who purchased our redemption with his broken body and shed blood. And we care for one another as we look at one another, as we hear the same words, and together we take and we eat, we take and we drink. Looking across the aisles, remembering we're doing this until he comes back. And beloved, because he is who he is, he's coming back. So we remember together. We hold fast together. We draw near together. We serve and encourage together when we partake of the Lord's Supper. 